Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Cadence Nina. We are editors at Dance Media, and we are recording this episode on Wednesday, just after President Joe Biden swearing in. So it's fitting that we'll be talking about why government support of the arts is so critical and how the Biden administration might best help the arts world through this pandemic crisis and also beyond it. Um, Then we'll zoom in a little bit and look at New York state government specifically. We'll look at the arts revival program that Governor Cuomo announced last week and at an insightful op-ed that was written in response to that announcement. And after those sure to be pretty intense discussions, we'll unwind for just a second by talking about the kind of incredible interview that Harry Styles' choreographer gave about the making of the Treat People with Kindness video. Although I'm realizing that actually that conversation is also bound to be fairly intense in a different way. Yeah, because Cadence is here. (laughs) Cadence is here. I can't wait. And then we'll have our interview with Erin Pride, the dance educator and entrepreneur who hosts the Dance Boss podcast. Erin is really good at helping people figure out the business side of whatever their dance dream is because can't be a dance boss without understanding how dance business works. That's one of the themes that we return to periodically on this podcast. But before we get started, just a quick reminder to make sure that you're signed up for our daily newsletter, because it is A of all free, and B and C of all, it's useful, and we hope at least it's fun. Um, The Dance Edit newsletter, it's a dance news digest. It rounds up all the dance world's top stories every weekday in a format that's designed to take about one minute to read. And it's for dancers, dance teachers, dance administrators, dance enthusiasts, dance moms. There's a little something in it for everybody. So whatever your involvement with dance, if you're not already subscribed, you can do so at thedanceedit.com. And now, as usual, it's time for our dance headline rundown, which is, as it always seems to be these days, jam-packed. So, Courtney, you're up first. So, starting with some more delightful news from Washington, uh, the Kennedy Center announced its newest class of honorees, which will include beloved dancing multi-hyphenates Debbie Allen and Dick Van Dyke. The Kennedy Center honors typically take place in December, but were postponed due to the pandemic. This group will be honored through a series of virtual tributes the week of May 17th. And in even more delightful news from Washington, which is just shocking to say, uh, the United States Postal Service, (laughs) the United States Postal Service announced an all new tap dance stamp series, which is very difficult to say, Um, designed by art director Ethel Kessler and featuring photographs by Matthew Murphy. The stamps highlight tap icons, Max Pollock, Michaela Marina Lerman, Derek Grant, Dormisha and Iodeli Cassell. Well, TAP fans will know that this isn't the first time that USPS has honored the form. In fact, in 2019, the Postal Service released a stamp featuring actor and tapper Gregory Hines in the Black Heritage Stamp Series. I just need to know when these are coming out because I guess I need to buy more stamps now. They're so good. And I love that they hired Matthew Murphy to do the photos too. Dancers photographing dancers. And I loved that Matthew Murphy actually posted the names of the dancers, unlike the USPS press release. Shade. (laughs) Uh, Paris Opera Ballet has slowly begun to deal with the racial stereotypes in its classical repertoire, you know, finally eliminating the use of blackface here in the 21st century. Uh, But following an interview with Paris Opera director Alexander Neef in Le Monde, in which he reportedly implied that some beloved classics might disappear from the repertoire, there's been some outcry from France's right wing bemoaning that the company is giving in to cancel culture. I mean... Eye roll. Just deep sighs and eye rolls. 
After going viral online with its video dancing through Harlem, the Dance Theater of Harlem was invited to appear on The Ellen Show. The company debuted a piece created just for the show titled New Bach, choreographed by Robert Garland, which featured the company's dancers dancing through New York City. And I think then they they ended up leaving with um, $20,000 to go toward their pandemic fundraising goals, which is also wonderful. Oh, we simply Thanks, love Ellen. to see it. Nina Anyanishvili will not, after all, head the ballet company of the Novosibirsk Ballet and Opera Theater in Russia. From what we can gather, it seems that they've mutually agreed to terminate the contract after some upset from the theater that she had publicly disclosed the impending appointment before the theater itself had shared the news. A lot of twists and turns in that story. Yes, so she is still at the State Ballet Theater of Georgia, just to be clear for everyone. Los Angeles-based dance company Lula Washington Dance Theater received a $970,000 grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The Mellon Award is the second largest in Lula Washington's history, according to Executive Director Erwin Washington, who received news of the award in December. Many in the community see the award as a symbol of hope for performing arts groups of color in particular who have long been frustrated by historical funding models. Makeda Easter wrote a great piece about that for the Los Angeles Times, which we'll link to in the episode description. And more details are being announced about the lineup for Dance NYC's annual symposium, which will be held entirely virtually this year, March 17th through 20th. Themed Justice, Transformation, Education, there will be three content tracks, one for each of those terms. Uh, And I particularly wanted to shout out the keynote panel, A Reckoning of Power, Accountability, and Gender Equity, which will be moderated by none other than our very own Lauren Wingenroth. Yay, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. The New Zealand-based Royal Family Dance Crew received swift online backlash after announcing a $200 per dancer audition fee in a recent social media post. Brett Goebel, Palace Dance Studio Manager and father of choreographer Paris Goebel, responded by saying, those who want to make it and are talented would know that the auditions are in January, and so they'll save up for it. I can't, I can't go there right now. <laughs> I will derail the entire episode if I start. <laughs> Uh, Baryshnikov Arts Center announced its digital spring lineup, which spans from February to June, and will include premieres from Bijiani Satpati, Mariana Valencia, Stephanie Battenbland, and Kyle Marshall. Um, and I was particularly tickled by the quote Mikhail Baryshnikov gave to the New York Times about the video works. Work presented on a digital platform is kind of a massive blind date. Always quotable. Misha, never change. And in some very sad news, Sir Robert Cohan, a pioneer of contemporary dance in Britain, has passed away at age 95. Brooklyn-born, Cohan performed for years with the Martha Graham Dance Company, often partnering with Graham herself. And in 1967, he moved to London, where he became the first artistic director of the London Contemporary Dance School, as well as the London Contemporary Dance Theatre. He was later knighted for his services to choreography and created work well into his 90s. Needless to say, social media has been awash in tributes since his passing. Yeah, that's a big one. RIP. So it is a big day. It is a big week for the United States. Joe Biden is now he has now officially been sworn in as our 46th president. And while the Biden administration is obviously facing a huge number of pressing challenges, it does feel like a good moment to sort of take a breath and take stock of how our country approaches arts funding. Like how is the current system broken? And how might it be improved upon? Because the need for more comprehensive and more coherent federal support of the arts has never been clearer than during this pandemic. So first, we want to talk about the why of federal arts funding, because a lot of people still argue, as the previous administration believed, that that kind of support is best left to private donors and charities. 
Last week, San Francisco Chronicle critic Joshua Kozman published an essay making the case for government arts funding, and it sort of boiled down to one idea, which is that the arts are part of our nation's critical infrastructure. Yeah, so Kozman talks a lot about how in 1935, FDR's Works Progress Administration included tens of thousands of dollars towards artistic progress, money that went towards painters, writers, composers, theater directors, and more. So he then kind of questions this idea that many people still hold today that the arts are a luxury. But he points out as we've been saying for months now, the arts are essential. If you look what's been driving conversation, healing our wounds, helping us make it through the last 10 months, it's art, be it cinema, television, music, and of course, dance. But Kozman takes it a step further and points out that at this dual moment of national crisis, as we as a country cope with both the effects of the pandemic and face a reckoning with our racist history, we need the arts more than ever because it's playwrights, painters, musicians, filmmakers, and dance creators who will help us work through the way that we live now and help us to face the reality that we face today. He says that art is another form of dialogue. It helps us to process. And because of this, we must invest in it. And in particular, we need to invest in the works produced by artists of color. I think it's interesting that what he's essentially arguing is that the arts are not an extra. They're not a luxury. They're a resource and a tool. As you're saying, Cadence, they're one of the best tools that we have to make sense of all these multiple crises that are happening right now. And I think dance, especially the catharsis that dance provides, either watching it or doing it. I mean, just look at what happened after the election when everyone poured into the streets. Dance itself is especially useful that way. And I don't mean to like diminish the arts as, oh, they're utilitarian. Like, no, of course not. But when we need everything that we can possibly get to help us heal from all of these crises we're facing, the arts are an important part of that toolbox. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think as human beings, something that we always come back to is storytelling. Uh, that's that's what we do. We create narratives, even if we're not consciously trying to do it. And the thing that artists do, even if they're working in abstract work, they help articulate a thing that maybe you're feeling but don't quite know how to approach. They help illuminate something that maybe you haven't experienced, but get you to look at it a different way. Um, it's one of the reasons why we constantly come back to the refrain of representation matters, especially in the arts, because it helps you to step outside of your own experience for a moment. It's a tool for empathy. It's a tool for healing. And I think, especially as Margaret said, dance in particular in this moment, especially when we're all so separated by screens and we are choreographed in our daily lives, keeping six feet away from one another still, bringing that awareness back to your body, even if you're just watching dance, is hugely important for staying connected to our common humanity. So at almost exactly the same moment that Kozman's piece went live, New York Times critic Jason Frago published a widely shared piece that laid out this big ambitious plan for how the Biden administration could, first of all, rescue the arts from their current pandemic-induced crisis, and then ensure that this kind of emergency doesn't happen again. And both Kozman and Farago referenced FDR's Works Progress Administration in their pieces. And I think it's worth noting that now that Democrats are in control of both houses of Congress, that kind of New Deal presidency seems much more attainable for Biden. So dreaming really big for the arts, as Farago does in his plan, doesn't feel ridiculous the way that it has for the past several years. Like, yeah, let's aim high. We can aim high now. Let's talk a little about the specific suggestions that Farago makes. 
Yeah, so there's basically three core components of what he laid out in this fantastic essay. Um, So starting with, of course, the Works Progress Administration, FDR's New Deal, doing what is today's version of that. Um, The idea of a federal cultural works project, which would essentially put uh, artists of all stripes on the federal payroll to do projects in various communities, not just because artists deserve a living wage and to be able to feed themselves. <laughs> the bar is on the floor. <laughs> yes. Um, which, that that's, again, whole other topic of conversation. Other, another podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, not just for that, but also to help uh, spur economic recovery. And, you know, and I think it also does feed back into what we were just talking about, about the arts being important uh, spiritually and emotionally for America. So point one, put artists to work on the federal payroll. I do think an important note there is that we shouldn't be forgetting that the primary motive is economic stimulus. So that does mean that dance artists shouldn't have to prove their worth to receive yes. help, which has been a long time problem in the dance funding yes, world. Yes, which is a huge point that's made in this story is talking about rather than applying for a grant and saying, yes, this is why my work is great and it excels. Instead of making those judgment calls, trust artists to know what they're doing and put them to work. Second point in here is we need a better safety net for artists. We actually need a better safety net for everyone, particularly considering how many people are employed by the quote-unquote gig economy, which obviously ground largely to a halt in the midst of the pandemic, and the holes that we already knew about that existed there became extremely readily apparent. So the pandemic unemployment assistance, which allowed freelance contractors to apply for unemployment, that was huge and very important. We need more stuff like that, and we also need things beyond just unemployment. Again, lots more to say there, but umbrella topic number two better safety net. One specific that he called out is money for pandemic-appropriate infrastructure improvements, like giving theaters grants for HVAC upgrades that'll make indoor performances a more realistic possibility. Get that on the list right away. And frankly, that should be infrastructure across the board regardless. That's just Mm -hmm. a thing that needs to happen. We live in a world where we are now living with a global pandemic that needs to be the standard. And number three, looking at actually getting more representation for arts and culture within the White House administration itself. Does that mean a cabinet seat? Does that mean a department of culture? Does it just mean a committee? You know, it can mean any number of things. And I think, you know, I am not the person to make the call about what the best version of that might be. Um, Definitely a point that was made was reestablishing the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities. Uh, which basically resigned en masse in 2017, Uh, reassembling that so that these more high-profile artists who have name recognition can use their star power and their influence and their uh, access to advocate for arts in the rest of the country so that we have representation that goes beyond just the NEA begging not to get cut every year. So I wanted to talk about some dance-specific ways these suggestions might be applied, starting with when we're talking about putting artists on a federal payroll, I think cultural diplomacy could end up being a big part Mm. of this, much as it was back during the Cold War when we were sending dancers and dance companies all over the world. We sent the Graham Company everywhere. We sent New York City Ballet everywhere, the earlier versions of New York City Ballet before it was called City Ballet. 
that's huge. It's productive on multiple fronts. It was also massively influential on dance history. The development of, yeah, exactly. I uh, spent a summer up at Kotspon doing the extreme ballet intensive, and we would have like academic lectures sometimes after we'd finish our eight hours of ballet. And uh, I think like 75% of the lectures I attended were talking about specific ways that cultural diplomacy in the Cold War impacted the development of both American modern dance and American ballet. It's fascinating. Moving on, because we have a lot to get to today. We've sort of been speaking hypothetically so far, but Last week, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo unveiled a not-hypothetical plan to help the arts recover. The center of the plan is the New York Arts Revival Program, which is a series of pop-up performances across the state by more than 150 artists from the worlds of music, theater, film, comedy, and yes, also dance. Um, But there's more to the plan, too, so let's get into what Cuomo laid out. Yeah. So, of course, at this point, uh, this was part of his State of the State address, so we don't have a ton of concrete details about how exactly this is going to play out. We do know that last spring and summer, New York City organized a series of pop-up performances that weren't too widely publicized, but the idea was kind of similar. Uh, So what we're looking at here is over the coming months, outdoor performances, performances in spaces that uh, have flexible seating and figuring out relatively COVID-safe ways to present these works. As Margaret mentioned, over 150 uh, artists who are involved, various organizations. So this is partially get those artists working again, get the uh, economic engines behind culture going again. Uh, Also, the state is partnering with the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to launch what they're calling a Creatives Rebuild Initiative. Um, And they are essentially funding putting 1,000 artists uh, back to work to kind of invest in small arts organizations throughout the state. So that's the program in broad strokes, which is the only way that we know it at this point, as Courtney said. Yes, we don't we don't have more details working on it. <laughs> I do think that Ballet Hispanico was the only dance group they mentioned on the list of performers for that pop-up concert series. I'm curious to see which other dance groups will be involved. But so shortly after Cuomo made this announcement, Gotham Gazette published a deeply thoughtful op-ed responding to the state's plan. And it was co-written by two New York arts leaders, Tiffany Ray Fisher, who's the artistic director of Elisa Monti Dance, and then Justin Krebs, who is the founder of nonprofit arts presenter and producer The Tank. And while they acknowledged that the governor's efforts were a good start, they made clear just how much more it will take to support the broader New York arts community effectively, particularly the state's independent arts venues and collectives. Because like star-powered pop-up concerts are great, but they are, as politicians like to say, the sizzle, not the steak. Ray Fisher and Krebs did a great job of putting forward a lot of just creative ideas on how Cuomo might commit to a more substantive investment in the arts. They talked about him, uh, you know, issuing grants and loans to help small theaters struggling to pay rent. They mentioned initiatives that care for freelancers and independent contractors. They mentioned employing artists in the New York public school systems that they're able to provide some extra income. And I think all of this is just kind of shows the mark of these people who are so involved in the New York performing arts community that they have all of these creative out of the box ideas. And that was one of the biggest points they made to Cuomo, that he needs to be bolder and creative in his plan moving forward. They say the governor announced a plan to employ 1,000 artists. Why not 50,000? They're really just asking him to think bigger. I mean, this is probably the biggest city for the arts in the world. So he needs to be thinking on that grander scale. 
Yeah, I love that idea that legislators should be thinking as boldly and creatively about art support as artists do about their work. And I also think uh, the very first kind of bullet point in the list that they laid out, space is sacred. And I think that that cannot be emphasized enough, particularly recording this from New York City. Um, We need to have spaces to rehearse and perform to go back to. You know, right now, there is obviously a lot of empty real estate that's happening, a lot of stuff that's going unused. And New York City has a history of favoring landlords over tenants and over arts organizations. And I think the last thing any of us want to see is them coming out of this moment and essentially using it as an excuse to further reduce the space that is available to artists, specifically dance artists who cannot do what they do without adequate space. And as they point out, when we're thinking about space, we can't just be thinking about the big guys. I mean, we Mm -hmm. want Broadway to come back as much as anyone else, but these smaller independent performance venues are just as important to the cultural makeup of New York, particularly for dancers and other performers who are just breaking into the business. And also like, hey, what's up? We don't have Hamilton without the public. The public is not Broadway, guys. And it's actually one of the better known, better funded of the smaller spaces. Yeah, without all of these different types of venues receiving support, the whole arts ecosystem is going to collapse. They all need help. I also thought it was interesting that they're emphasizing that putting all these dance artists, all these artists, period, on unemployment isn't the best answer, that we need to think bigger picture than that, that there are structural problems that need to be addressed instead of just, well, you're going to be out of work. Here's some help while you're out of work. And the other thing that I really liked that they did was they very gently pointed out, like, you know, we're actually, we're not lawmakers, we're creators. So here are some ideas and some principles, but figuring out the actual solutions isn't our job. We're not going to lay out a whole plan for you. That's that's your job, legislators. So go forth with our input. I think that's a very healthy and productive way to be looking at these kinds of problems if you are an artist or involved in the arts community. And I think if we could get more partnership wherein... Uh, policymakers are actually listening to the creative people who are their constituents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would be wonderful. Yep. Hard retweet. Um, so we're pretty much out of time. But before we end this roundtable part of the episode, we can't help ourselves. We got to talk about Harry Styles for a minute. Um, or rather, we have to talk about a recent Billboard interview with his choreographer, Paul Roberts in which Roberts tells the story of how Styles Treat People with Kindness video, which is just wonderful, came to be. I mean, if you haven't seen the video yet, just pause now and take a few minutes to watch it. Harry, like, finds the goofy ginger to his goofy Fred (laughs) in Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's great. But the interview reveals what the choreographic inspirations for the video were and cadence. I know you're on this. <laughs> really trying to hold back the fangirling. I think it comes as a surprise to no one that I've been a Harry Styles obsessive since the One Direction era. So I'm going to try to reel it in. But even just watching the video, I think it was so exciting to see Styles working with Roberts again. They worked together on Styles' One Direction days. And Roberts is kind of a commercial dance legend in Britain. He's worked on videos and tours for the likes of Sam Smith, Sir Paul McCartney, the Spice Girls. And I guess the story goes that Harry Styles sent Roberts a link to the Nicholas Brothers dance scene from the movie Stormy Weather and basically said, how hard would it be for me to do something like this? And the result was one of the most just heartwarming music videos that I've seen in a while. I mean, we were talking earlier about how the arts have kind of soothed our souls during this pandemic. This video for me was one of those moments where I was just able to breathe and feel joy. 
in a dark clouded year. And just for reference, so the scene that they're talking about, the jump and jive that the Nicholas Brothers did in Stormy Weather, Fred Astaire straight up called that the greatest dancing ever recorded on film. It is incredible. And just the idea of, of Harry Styles sending that to his choreographer and being like, can you teach me to dance like this? Like, just bless his heart. I mean, I just bless him. I mean, <laughs> and you know, there's like this kind of level of like beginner's enthusiasm like that, like not mm-hmm. knowing how much you don't know, but being gung ho to try it anyway. And that comes across in the video and it's deeply charming. Totally. And like, yeah, he doesn't extend all the way through his arms and they get behind his center of mass <laughs> sometimes. And I'm okay with it because it's just really fun. And also Phoebe Waller-Bridge in that outfit. Um, I can't, like, I just, I can't. I can't. Just on the note of Harry not extending through his arms, I guess that Harry worked with a actual ballet teacher while he was like prepping for this video. And one of the notes in particular was that Harry had to learn how to extend through his arms. And when Roberts, you know, asked him, you know, are you still working on this on a day that they weren't rehearsing? Harry sent a very balletic photo of him doing his arm positioning at the gym that day. And all of it is just so endearing, the commitment. And it is quite good for a non-dancer. I will give him credit. It is. It is. And while they're not getting to the technique of the Nicholas Brothers or any of the other like MGM references they were making, in terms of the energy, the overall feeling, they definitely captured it. Like they talked in the interview about how Moses Supposes from Singing in the Rain was another major inspiration. And that's I totally get that vibe from Harry and Phoebe. They're definitely doing like a Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor thing. And musically, they did quite well. Like the musicality was great. The profile also, by the way, floats the idea of Harry coming to Broadway. And I just want to hear, I mean, Dreamcasting. Where would we like to see him were that to happen? Um, I'd love to see him in Moulin Rouge just because I think <gasps> I would really enjoy hearing him sing all the songs that Christian sings. I also am not well-versed on Harry Styles' falsetto, but I mean, I just seeing him as Orpheus, I can just picture him taking over Reeve Carney's like, whole aesthetic in that show. I have a lot of feelings just even thinking about that. I think he could go there. I think he could do the falsetto. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with Aaron Pride. Stay tuned. Our guest on the podcast this week is Aaron Pride, host of the Dance Boss podcast. Hi, Aaron. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Aaron is a dance educator and entrepreneur who is committed to teaching dance artists how to build sustainable online businesses. And on her podcast, she talks about out-of-the-box ways to support both your own dreams and the wider dance community. And she also shares the stories of leaders who are, as she likes to say, crushing it. So welcome, Erin. And it's so nice to be here. I had the privilege of having you on. Well, I we did your interview for my podcast yesterday, so I can't wait yep. for my community to hear that. Okay, we have a double header back to back. Yes. Um, can we get started by, would you mind telling our listeners about your dance story? First of all, how did you discover dance and what was your journey as a student and then a professional dancer? Well, I grew up in the hood, as I like to say, in the ghetto. Um, my parents were both educators and they didn't necessarily live in the ghetto because they had to. It's kind of where their family migrated because my mom and dad both grew up in um, New York. My mom, Harlem, my dad, Queens. And then my grandparents came over to Patterson and my family kind of followed. So, you know, we lived in the nicer area. I put that in air quotes of Patterson, New Jersey, but it was a rough area. Um, where I actually grew up was where all of like the prestigious doctors and lawyers used to live before 
the city transformed into a ghetto. So it was like, it changed. So, you know, even though like I lived near a park, there were beautiful houses and beautiful greenery, like two blocks down, there was gang violence and people hanging out on the corners. Um, so coming from parents that were both educators, they really valued extracurricular activity. I grew up in a house with six kids. There's two sets of twins. I'm not one. My parents always say there couldn't be two errands. So I get it. <laughs> um, so there was a time when you know, well, my mom put me on in dance class when I was four, because that's what every parent does. And, you know, she put all the girls in it, but I really fell in love with it. She always tells a story of like how I was on stage at four being the biggest ham and knowing the dance steps. So, but my parents did, didn't really know how to put a child in dance who was really interested in dance. You know, they just put me in Miss Susie's school of dance. They didn't understand like, hey, we have access to New York City. We can actually send her to some of the most prestigious and get her like amazing training. So my training wasn't that good. And then I there's a there was a performing arts high school that opened up in my town, city, town, whatever. And my parents really took the time to make sure that I had dance training because that high school didn't have gang violence because it was by audition. And it was like all kids who were interested in the arts, whether it's drama, dance, acting, whatever. So my parents were like, no, we have to get her in this school or we have to send her a private school because we don't really want her intertwined in the gang violence, right? They wanted to make sure that I had a chance. So they put me in that school and my teacher did the best that she could, but the training wasn't excellent, right? But I got to learn that I love dance there. And when it was time to audition for college, um, my parents were like, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'm not going to college if you don't let me dance. So they kind of were put against a wall. My dad worked for Queens College. So there was a list of colleges that I could go to for free. And Marymount Manhattan was one of them. And Marymount Manhattan is a great school. So it was up to me to get accepted. But once I got accepted, the tuition itself was, was waived. So I auditioned for Marymount and I did horrible there. I got in and, you know, I was the least proficient in the program. It was super rigorous. I got accepted as a BA and not a BFA. So I started telling myself I was less than anyway. So I really didn't excel there and my grades were just slipping. I really just wasn't, I kind of felt tons of resistance. I think I was accepted, if I'm going to be honest with you, because at the time I went to school in ninth college in 98. So at that time, I really think I was accepted to bring up the quota of African-American dancers. If I'm going to be honest, I didn't have the skills to get into that school. But there's always a light. The ballet, the modern teacher at Marymount, Nancy Lushington, who danced with the Graham Company, she was the ballet teacher at Montclair State University, which is in New Jersey where I live. She noticed that I was kind of falling off and she took a liking to me and she said, I think it would be most beneficial for you to audition for Montclair State and get a smaller learning environment. And at this time, my parents and me were like, okay, let's try it. It's not working out at Marymount. I auditioned to Montclair State and the skills I learned in Marymount, when I was at that Montclair State audition, I was like one of the best ones there. So here I go from being the worst to the best. Now, obviously the dancers were different, but that really built up my self-esteem, right? And I was like, okay, maybe I can really excel here. So I went to Montclair State. I got a wonderful education. Um, it was wonderful for me because it was a small learning environment. I got individualized attention and the dancers were at my level. And of course there were dancers above my level, but I didn't feel like I was drowning in things that I didn't understand how to comprehend. So it's there that I got amazing um, 
opportunities. Like I got a full scholarship to train at Jacob's Pillow. Jacob's Pillow is like the cat's meow. Like I freaking, I was on a work study there. Like it was amazing. Um, And then I graduated and I kind of thought that I was supposed to audition for Broadway because in my undergrad, what we learned was you teach, you're a choreographer or whatever, you open a dance studio, so, or go on Broadway or whatever. So everybody was auditioning for Broadway and I'm like, this is not what I want to do. And I realized that I love concert dance, but I wasn't booking anything big. And I thought that meant a lot of mindset. I wasn't good enough, right? A lot of mindset here, you know, the New York city grind. So my parents said, you need to get a job. We're done supporting you. I'm like, what? No, I need your money. What what about the money tree in the backyard that you're supposed to always give me branches of? And so the dance teacher at the high school that I went to left. And my parents were like, there's a job opening up at the high school you went to take it. I was like, are you crazy? I don't even like kids. Like I'm not. So I just kind of went on the interview. I got the job. And I was hired as a permanent sub. And let me tell you, the first day I taught those kids, I fell in love. Um, I always like to say that they chose me. I didn't choose them. And God did me a favor and was like, nope, you're going to love this. This is your calling. So for many years, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I love those kids. I love them so much. Um, I love teaching my kids. Like They're my kids because they come from the hood. They don't have all of the opportunities people have. And I'm able to train them and get them into prestigious colleges. Like I went in that program and I redid it to match my undergrad program. I wasn't playing. I'm like, my babies are getting into some of these pre prestigious colleges. No more Miss Rinky Dink technique at the school. So that's what happened. And then I got the performance bug and I was 35 years old. I was in a relationship and I thought I was going to get married to him. Don't know why I just told you that, but it kind of goes into my story. He, Palabalus, my favorite dance company in the world, had an audition and I told him that I wanted to go. And he's like, are you crazy? You have a full-time job and you're too old. Thank God I didn't marry him, right? Who wants that kind of partner? And I went, I was like, screw it. Like, I don't care what you have to say. And that's the high type of person I am. I went to the audition. I made it like all three days. The last day I got cut. And one of my mentors, Andrea Kramer from Ballet Forte in New Jersey, she said to me, you need to email them. You need to thank them for um, just seeing you for those three days. And you just need to let them know that it was a privilege. And I did that. And they emailed me back and they said, we loved you. We want to offer you a full scholarship to train with us in the summer. 36, 35 years old. So I trained and then little did I know it was like their way of seeing deeper if they wanted me to work with them. Now, Palabalus has two companies. They have the main company, I think it's called seven or six or whatever. And then they have their contracted company where they contract dancers to do shadow work. So they hired me to do shadow work with them. So I actually got hired at the age of 35 to dance with them. And I like to tell that story because that kind of just explains the path of my life. I've always been somebody who takes chances, who doesn't take no for an answer, who lets people guide me. And I believe in mentorship. And it's from that that amazing opportunities have happened. And I'm just so grateful that I was able to lean in and not take no for an answer. So long story short, I did it for about two shows with Palabalus. And I was like, I'm with these 20 year olds. I really just don't want to be on tour. Like this is not fun. Like touring at 35 was not fun for me. So I hard on your body. Yeah. yeah, That was short lived. And, and then, yeah, then kind of my performance ended and the rest is to be continued. (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, just take a moment to appreciate 
the scope of that story. That was incredible. First, you answered my next like 15 questions, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, but I also I want to talk too about that next step. So what inspired you then to start the Dance Boss podcast? Um, what was sort of the aha moment where you said, this is a different direction. This is maybe a path that I haven't seen before that I'd like to explore. Because as you were saying, it's we're, we're trained that there are only certain paths to follow. But it seems like, and especially in your case, this is true, your greatest successes happen when you think outside of those boxes. I've always been a person of vision. And I've always been a person of like who, somebody asked me this, and this will tie into like why I started the Dance Boss podcast. Um, somebody asked me like, have you always been a person that saw a vision? I've always been a person who's, who like dreamt and like thought I could achieve it. So there was a time in my teaching where I honestly can tell you, like, I just love my kids, but teaching wasn't for me anymore. I looked at the long term of somebody once said, like, look at your boss. If you don't want their job, you need to rethink what you're doing. And everybody was saying, Erin, go for your principal certification. You'll be an amazing principal. And I'm like, I went, I started my master's to be a principal and I'm there. And the woman is like, if you're sitting in this classroom and it's not something you're a hell yes about, this is wrong for you. And I dropped out. I didn't want to do that. So I um, was just like feeling called to like share my voice and do other things. And then I heard, I went, I, 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 oh my God, I'm such a, a master's degree dropout. This is funny. I also went to Holland's to start my MFA because along my journey, I got my master's in education from NYU. When I had no clue what I wanted to do, I was like, okay, so the next logical step is to get into the collegiate level and be a professor. But with that, you need an MFA to do it full time. I only had a master's of dance ed. So I started the Hollands program for my MFA and I was like, I don't like this either. Okay, I'm leaving. And, and I left. And then one of the people from the Hollands program posted something on Facebook. They said, I'm going to be on the dance podcast. And they wrote a little blurb about it. And I checked it out. I checked out the interview and I stopped in my tracks. I was like, wait, what is this thing called podcasting? You can share your message on, on audio and people listen and, and it's interesting and it's an engaging. And I was like, I want to do that. And I had no clue what that meant. All I knew was like, that was my next step. And that's all I needed. So I truly believe that like going to Holland's gave me that little nugget to listen to the dance podcast, which gave me the little nugget to start the dance boss podcast. And then I like to say the rest was divine. I think I was laying on my couch or my bed and the name Dance Boss Podcast came to me. And also like from there, I just started writing like an intro blurb. And from there, everything got fleshed out. I got my $50 microphone and just started hitting record. And I was like, I'm just going to share on my expertise of running successful classrooms because I was really good at it because I came from a K through 12 setting. I understood all of those ideologies. And I also understood from a master's perspective, how to make students excel, right? Because that was my whole goal, making underserved students excel so that they can get into high performing or, or esteemed college program. So that's where I started. And then I said to myself, this still isn't it. What I really want to do is help people pursue their dreams and be educated on how to do it in a success successful way. And since then, the Dance Boss podcast has then translated into that. And that's where my journey is now. You've said that you're, you love to talk about on your podcast, the what, the why, and the how 
of dance entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? How, how is is that? Would you describe that as sort of your your mission statement, or is there something else? No, I think that you nailed it. The what, why, and how. So what I learned along my journey, and from working with people, and even working with my students, is. We believe that the only way, like, first of all, with my students, I kept seeing the same thing. These amazing artists and these amazing humans being developed, not wanting to pursue any kind of actual performance or teaching career, but still wanting to be involved in the arts, but not being educated on how. So I was like, this is something. If my students are feeling this way, then other people must be feeling this way. So I really started to play with the idea of how can I use my platform to educate dancers on the possibility beyond performing, teaching, and and choreographing? Like, what are the other possibilities? So that's the the why, right? Why do you want to do it? Why do you want to bring in additional revenue streams for yourself? Why do you want to build out your own um, income and all those things? And then I wanted to dive deeper into like, okay, So you know what you can do, but how do you do it? How do you do it in a successful way? And that's why I really invested in my education on online business development. Because when the pandemic hit, I was like, okay, here's everybody and their mama that has a dance background having to start an online business, but how do they do it successfully? Because I'll tell you this, I didn't get training on money as an artist right? Like I didn't even, I didn't even understand, like when I left college, I didn't even understand like, okay, I'm going to contract for all these dance schools. What the hell do I put on my taxes? Like, how do I claim myself? Wait, what is this? How much do I have to, like, I just wasn't educated on it. And I was living paycheck to paycheck. And then I was, I made a decision that I wanted to become educated on that and then to support artists to get educated on that. And more importantly, like when they're building these online businesses, what do they have to be doing with their money to make it sustainable? Sure, you can get like uh, a cash injection from 10 kids that register for your online dance classes, but how do you stack your income and look for it, look at it for the long term so that you're continuously bringing in revenue and you're continuously growing? So that, I guess, is the mission now of the Dance Boss Podcast. There is, there's such a hesitance in the dance world to even talk about the money side of things. Mm -hmm. Like college dance programs, which are so great at preparing students artistically, they turn out these brilliant artists who then don't know how to support an artistic career. And I, I don't know, I find that endlessly frustrating, which is why I think that people like you are so important to this community. Can you talk about some of the things, like the most important things, financially speaking, that you wish dancers knew about running a business? Absolutely. Well, first of all, get yourself an accountant, get somebody who is going to help and stand by your side. Don't try to do the taxes by yourself, like get educated on it, get yourself a bookkeeper. And a bookkeeper is not just about, Oh, I brought in $10 this month. I brought in 11. No, a bookkeeper that is a good bookkeeper is going to help you look at the health of your business, the profit, the loss, um, and all of the things. So that's number one, get invest in that. Like that is so important in your business because a bookkeeper is really going to teach you how to think um, long-term about your financial success. And they're going to help you understand if what you're doing is actually going to get you to the revenue that you desire. So that's that. And then the second thing I would think about is it's a big thing with artists pricing, right? We as artists, or I, let me speak to myself as an artist, always price from a 
place of emotion. Like, um, okay, that sounds good. Yeah. I, okay. $50 for that. Yeah. That sounds good. Or like to set a piece, um, just kind of putting a price out there and not really looking at how, what I'm charging is going to get me to my financial goal and not looking at how many I have to bring in of whatever I'm charging and how often I have to bring those in. It's not sexy, right? It's so freaking boring, right? And artists don't kind of want to put on that hat, but it's really about like looking at your income from a place to move you towards your financial goal and like curriculum, um, designing it backwards. So whatever your financial goal is, creating what your offers are and your services and pricing them to meet that over the long term. And trust me, like, it's not about just getting quick fixes of money. It's about building your financial health and your financial wealth. And what I like to tell artists, it doesn't matter. Like a lot of people get very consumed by what they see other people doing online. Like this person, oh, when I make 10K a month, that's going to make me, no, like I have a client that I work with who's like, no, I want to make 4K. That's going to like pay my bills, make me happy. And I don't want to work that hard for it. Okay, four, let's, let's figure it out. Like get really true about what you want to, make money for. Like some people I work with don't even have a personal budget, get a personal budget. Like it's all of those things. I love the point that you made a little bit earlier about don't be afraid to ask for help, bring in other experts. You don't have to be the expert in everything. That's okay. Cause I feel like that is, that does run counter to our, our dancer mindset as you have to be self-reliant. You have to be the person doing it all. Um, and it's so important for artists to hear that. No, actually having a community around you paying for support if you can't like that's also okay that's also necessary so much of the time mm-hmm. um i also wanted to talk about what what qualities i mean i think we like to say in the dance community that dancers can do everything mm-hmm. what qualities do you think do make dancers especially good business people what skills do they learn in the dance context that they can then bring into that side of their life oh my gosh we are the people meant to do it we are the creatives right we have the discipline we understand that growth doesn't happen immediately, even though in our training, we wanted it to, right? So those are the, all the skills. Like you have to have discipline. You have to be willing to take corrections. You have to be willing to ask for support the same way you ask a teacher, hey, I don't get this concept. How can I improve it? You have to be um, resilient, be able to bounce up when things don't go right. A performance sucks. You got to be able to come back and get on the stage the next night. So I think that we are the people that are made to create sustainable online businesses. It's just about letting the ego go, being humble and saying, okay, I really want to do this. I really want to build financial support for me and my family in the long term and have this additional revenue stream as an artist. I don't know how to do it. So I'm going to get support to build it the right way. Yeah. Um, it feels like the digital avenues and outlets for dancers, they're almost limitless these days, which in many ways is, is fantastic. There are so many opportunities for growth. Um, but it also makes it really difficult, especially as you're trying to start a new dance business, if that's what you're doing to stand out in the online space. So what is your advice on that front? What can dancers do to make their brands, make their products really stand out in the crowd, which is only bigger now during the pandemic Mm -hmm. as everybody suddenly has, you know, an online hustle. 
Absolutely. I talk about this a ton in Dancepreneur Academy. Listen, what do I invest in? I invest in business coaches. I invest in clothes. I invest in makeup and I don't invest in everybody. Like I don't care if there's 20 million makeup brands out there. I know which one I like and which one calls and speaks to me. But I want the listeners to let go of the mindset block that there's too many people. It's not too many people. What's wrong is like, you don't know how to share your message. And we talked about this when you were interviewed on my podcast. You know, you have to understand how you write and what kind of tone you want. You have to be willing to repel some people in order to call in your people. The thing is everybody, it's like this. You don't wanna, I know, I remember in high school, I was the kind of person that I wanted everybody to like me. And I had very big growing pains, right? And it was like, I became a chameleon for all these different friend groups to fit in. And that's kind of what people do in the online space. You want everybody to like you. Well, that's actually hurting your business. When you get really crystal clear about what are your values, what are you, your beliefs, what do you stand for, then you're able to call in the right people for you. And the other thing is like really honing, I like to call it your spark. Have you ever seen as a teacher or as a performer, like, have you ever taught kids in a class and everybody's great. Everybody's at this really amazing level, but there's something about this one student. Like you can't take your freaking eye off of them. Like you, you just love watching them. And the beauty about that is like me and you could be teaching the same dance class and two different students will do that for us. Right. So what you want to be able to do is like, what's your spark? If you're a dance studio owner, what what sets you apart? What makes you you? That when you start to tie that into your content and start to tie that into your message, then you're going to call in the right people. How have you seen the online dance business world evolve and change during the pandemic? Because it seems like that must have presented both challenges and also opportunities for people. Yeah, I, I like to say there's two types of people. There, there are either people that I saw in the dance industry who moved online because they had to, right? Because they had to have um, a digital or online portion of their program. Or there's people who, because of the pandemic, were like, oh, wow, I have this, this laying on my heart and I want to achieve it. So I see those kind of two, two different people in the online space. And I, and I actually love that. Okay. I don't love the pandemic, but I see blessings in the pandemic. We are definitely going into this digital age. And I don't think personally, when the pandemic is over, that we're going to rewind and go back to how things were. What's going to happen is that being online is going to give you the capability to serve more people, impact more people and bring in more money for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of a bigger picture question. You like to talk about stepping into what you feel called to do. Um, and I think a lot of dance people, you know, we start out as, as dancers and that's such a clear calling to follow. Mm-hmm. But then maybe we have a harder time figuring out once we leave the performing world, like as you were talking about with your own journey, what is our next calling? Or it might feel scarier to start down that path if we have a sense of what it might be because maybe it's a less obvious or like less direct route than the traditional like train, audition, get a job, dancer route. Mm-hmm. Um, so what advice do you have for dancers who are struggling with those kinds of situations, who are trying to figure out how to step into that next calling? I would just say <clears throat> you got to let go because it might not, it's probably not it's probably not what you expected it to be, right? Did I think I was going to be here coaching other dancers how to start online businesses? No, I was like, first a performer that no first a student, then a performer, then a teacher. And I guess what moved me and this is the only way that I could give advice is like, I just knew in my heart that I wasn't happy. 
And I, it just became like leaning into the next apparent steps and fumbling along the way and getting mentors because I value education, because I value perspective shifts. I value people, like you said, who help me see my blind spots. So I just, just leaning into the fact that you're not happy and leaning into the fact that change is on the horizon and just kind of taking the next steps to figure out what it is. This is another huge question. <laughs> what are What would you say are some of the most important lessons that you've learned from your own ventures, from the podcast, from your coaching, from your teaching? What are the biggest things they've taught you? That the most important thing in, a, in life is to understand how to be a leader, a leader for yourself and a leader for others. That doesn't mean that you have to be someone who wants a team of employees or anything like that. That means that how do you want to lead yourself? How do you want to show up in your life? Setting boundaries, aspiring to do new things, whatever it is, that's so important. And I've learned that personal development is so important. Like, I don't know, I had so many breakthroughs when I stopped resisting and started leaning into exploring what else is out there in the world. Like, that's what I think it is. I think my biggest breakthrough is like, this is all an exploration. There's no expiration date on it. This is like the podcast was an exploration. This business I'm doing is an exploration. Like, it's not like I'm trying to get to an end result. Although I have goals I want to reach, I'm just here exploring how I can always be better and do better. And I think that was the biggest learning lesson for me because I, when I first started my business, I am a high achieving person. And if I don't watch out, I can be driven by ego, right? So I always had to check myself and just do the work so that I could let those things go and start to enjoy the process instead of letting the process dictate my happiness. Yeah. I love the idea of creating your own definition of leadership. Like sometimes we hear about creating your own definition of success, mm -hmm. but investing in yourself as a leader and figuring out the type of leader that you want to be is such an important part of achieving that success. Mm -hmm. And people don't talk about that as much. Um, all right. So finally, you're this incredibly gifted connector, like you've built this beautiful network, especially through your podcast, highlighting all of these extraordinary people, these extraordinary businesses. So as sort of a, a connection expert, can you recommend some of your favorite resources for dance educators and dance entrepreneurs, like podcasts, websites, brands that are mm -hmm. that are crushing it? Of course I can. I love Apollo Performance. Apollo for Performance is the shock company. Um, basically shoes and socks for your feet. And I just love not only their product, but I love their mission. So let me tell you a little bit why I love them. Because I didn't even have the Dance Boss podcast. I they They put out a calling on Facebook and they were like, any teachers want to try the shocks? And I was like, yeah, shoot, free stuff. I'll try it. They sent them to me. I love them. I was like, hmm, I'm wondering if they'll sponsor the podcast. Right away, They, I wrote them an email. They, they said, yeah, we'll sponsor it. But since then, I have developed such a beautiful relationship with them. And to watch the things that they are doing for the dance community outside of selling their product is just moving. So I think it's just a brand to know, to really look inside and see all the cool things they're doing. The um, other brand I really love is Doctors for Dancers. Jen runs that along with her sons. And it's just this really cool organization that helps you find a, a dance specialist in your area that helps you get treatment on whatever you need. 
I remember such a brilliant idea. It's such, such a, brilliant a brilliant idea. idea. Yeah. So I love, I love them. Who else? There's so many, the, da- um, the dance podcast, I think you should check out. That is the podcast that, like I said, inspired me to start a podcast. Um, it's just a really amazing one, but on the note of being a connector, just, um, just explore with curiosity. Like that's it. Like there's so much cool stuff out there. You just got to get interested and in to see what's going on. Erin, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights with us. Um, please be sure to subscribe to the Dance Boss podcast. It's available on all the major listening platforms. And you can learn more about Erin and all her projects at her website, erinpride.com, including actually, do you have an upcoming Dancepreneur Academy? Is that starting in, in January? Yes. My Dancepreneur Academy is my four-month group coaching program. It's a small group. I'm only taking um, five dancepreneurs because I, I come from an education background. As you know, I like individual attention. I want to make sure that's me in your business. It's any for anybody who wants to start, grow an online dance business. And over the four, course of four months, I teach you how to do that. And I do it from an educational standpoint. I don't say, do it this way. I say, here is what it is here is how it would help your business but let's figure out how to adapt it for you in the life season you're in so if you're interested in applying you can actually go over to my instagram at erin pride i'm always up in in the um, instagram and you can click the link in my bio um yeah i would love to meet you great we'll include links to all that all of our social accounts in our episode description so you can properly keep up with her on all those platforms too Thank you again, Erin. So nice talking with you. Thank you. You're doing amazing work and it's been an honor. I had such a good time talking to Erin. Um, again, please be sure to follow her on Instagram at Erin Pride. And by the way, as we mentioned, there's actually another half to our conversation. You can hear her interviewing me about all things dance journalism in episode 116 of the Dance Boss podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone, and treat people with kindness. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Hi, everybody. This is Jack. And this is Reed. From Dance and Stuff Podcast. Please tune in to listen to our podcast where we talk about movies, toothpaste, nice memories. Yes, nice and mundane and occasionally dance. Occasionally we talk to people inside of dance. And occasionally and we talk to people out, outside of dance and like film, TV, theater, absolutely. what have you. Uh, and maybe a... a, a a psychic who knows yeah basically you're gonna want to have to listen to us talk so if you like the tones of our voice tune on in every friday anywhere you can find podcasts we loves you